But we've only done it two times, so... In your pew Bible, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find the text on 979. Otherwise, for everybody else, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. We, <coughs> we are talking about... I'm a little hoarse from all the smoke I've been breathing downstairs, so I've got my bottle of water handy. I've also got my phone up here in case the alarm company calls me and the smoke detectors go off and I can call off the fire department. Otherwise, it'll really be an eventful Sunday. Martin Luther called these the household codes. They started back in chapter 5 and verse 21, and they go through chapter 6 and verse 9. There are three pairings in these household codes. There's wives and husbands. There's children and parents, with a special emphasis really on a father's role, which is what we did last week. And then this week, there is the third pairing of slaves and masters in chapter 6 and uh, from verse 5 to verse 9. Now, in all of these cases, what Paul has to say is countercultural. It's not, I mean, the worst, I, I, would, I don't know that it's even arguable. I think it's inarguably the most offensive in these household codes is what Paul has to say to slaves and masters. But it really isn't limited to what he says to slaves and masters because what he instructs for wives and what he instructs for husbands, and really what he instructs for both children and parents and fathers, it's all countercultural. It all goes against the norm of our own society and culture as to what is right, what is best for your relationships. But the Bible really isn't trying to keep in step with secular culture, which is always changing like secular science is always changing. I love it when they discover new fossil and they find out, well, we were off 100 million years, but this time we've got it right. Or they find something new out in outer space and they decide, oh, you know, we've got, we've, that timetable was wrong too, but now we're sure. Uh, I would rather just go with what God says from the beginning, both in how it all got started and how it's all going to wind up and why we're here in the meantime, and what it should look like. The biggest reason why Paul's instructions are countercultural is because it starts at a different place than secular society. And where it starts is with God. And if you start with God, then his instructions can make pretty good sense, because if you start with God, it means the instructions, you will be held accountable by God as a Christian for knowing these instructions. And it may not set well in American culture or Western culture, but you're not going to be held accountable at the end of the day by them, though you may be judged superficially. At the end of the day, you'll be held accountable by God for how you conducted yourself as a wife in the rela your marriage relationship and a husband in your marriage relationship or you as a child, whether it's obedience as a young child or honoring as an older child, and then parents, or uh, fathers in particular, giving direction to their children in nurturing them, disciplining them, and admonishing them in the instruction of the Lord. But now, we're really on slaves and masters, which is the most difficult of all. The text reads like this. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, 
but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Those are the instructions to what here is termed bondservants. Then to masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Those are the instructions. Let's start by defining a few terms. The most obvious terms in this last last group of household instructions. You've got the word bondservants in the English Standard Version. Your Bible may read servants, or your Bible may read slaves. The right word is really the word slaves. Uh, The English Standard Version uses the word bondservant. Uh, In case you're unfamiliar with what a bondservant is, a bondservant is somebody who willingly, I'm going to say, employs themselves or makes themselves a servant because they consider this master or this household or this situation so desirable I will enter into a pledge or a contract to serve in that sense. And that's a bondservant. You've made yourself that. It's the nicest of the three terms. Uh, Servant has far less discretion as to who he's serving and what he's doing. And a slave smacks even stronger of you don't have much say in the matter at all. In fact, you're treated... Uh, In many cases, you're treated as chattel, as property, and that's just the way it is. It's all translating the same word. The English Standard Version, in the preface of their Bible, if you have a Bible that has any sort of uh, extras in it, in their preface to the entire Bible, they explain, give you basically a reason why they chose to translate this word bondservants. It reads like this. The word is doulas. The term covers a range of relationships that require a range of renderings. Slave, bondservant, or servant, depending on the context. Further, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery, particularly in 19th century America. That's really the reason why they did that, that last part. The range isn't nearly so broad as what the English Standard Version is suggesting. That's not really the reason. The reason why they translated it bondservants is because if they translated it slavery, it would be so so countercultural, it would be so offensive, and people would criticize the Bible as so outdated, and... That, that it would just be an obstacle. So they, they chose, I'm going to say, the easy path and translated bondservant. John MacArthur will take exception to that, which you'll see in just a little bit. And when I play the John MacArthur clip, let me, uh, let me tell you this. It's a little over the top. Uh, he talks about a conspiracy. I don't, I don't know that this explanation is part of a conspiracy to hide the truth. But I I think it's a way to try to accommodate or contextualize the text. I think it's unwarranted. 
I think it's misguided. I think it's unfortunate. But I'm not ready to call it a conspiracy. We'll hear from John MacArthur in a little bit. That's the word. Uh, I think from here on out when I show screens, I think I'm using the word servants. And it's only because I actually listened to what John MacArthur said this morning at about 7 o'clock. And it was too late to change all my slides over to slaves. But uh, at least I didn't put on bondservant. The word masters. In the Greek, this is a word kurios. It is used hundreds of times. I'm pretty sure I actually didn't check. It's almost always translated Lord. It's a title that's applied uh, liberally to God liberally to Jesus in the Gospels, and also to people that have a certain measure of authority and power. And the context will determine, what kind of Lord are we talking? Because when a human ruler happens to be called Lord, in the Bible sense, they're not calling him God. They're merely saying he is a a person in a position of power and authority, and they can make people do things. In the ultimate sense, only God is Lord. Only Christ Jesus is Lord. But it's used in lesser senses as well. So those are the the terms. Let's move forward. A few parameters and assessments of the situation before we look at the text. Look at the few verses that we have. And hopefully we'll do this all in one week unless the fire department shows up. Parameter number one. The Bible in general, and Paul in particular, does not explicitly condone or condemn slavery. In this text, he isn't condoning slavery, though he's giving a word to slaves and a word to masters, nor is he condemning it. He's merely treating slavery and masters as the situation that's at hand. It's just the way things are. Now, there are individuals that object to that and say, well, shouldn't he condemn it? I mean, here's a chance to come out, come clean and say, this is wrong. And if you have slaves, you need to set them free. He doesn't. He just treats it as this is ordinary and customary in in the world, the Mediterranean world at that time. And if you find that a little unsettling, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, we'll explore that a little bit. That's, that's the first parameter. Secondly, however much should or should not be made of it, it is true that slavery in the Greco-Roman world at that time was significantly different from the type of slavery that stains the history of America. Now hear me out here, because if you only hear half of what I say, it will be unbalanced. I want to make sure I get this first statement right. So my first statement would be this. Some slaves were in a very secure and advantageous economic situation. They are in a desirable... uh, As a slave, it's a desirable position to be in the Roman world. There were... uh, I don't know if it was million... There were a lot of slaves in the Roman world. And it was part of the economy... And many of those situations were good because it meant you were employed and taken care of and it was a good, living, a good living place to be. In fact, in many cases, it was the worst, the lowest class would be people that, that nobody wanted them to be their slave and they were kind of on their own and they weren't, very good, they weren't good at very much. That was the lowest class in the Roman world. Uh, if 
Christianity had broken on the scene and they were Christianity was not legitimized by Rome for a long time. If Christianity had broken on the scene and said, uh, we are preaching Christ as Lord, and Christ as Lord means slavery is wrong, and we are declaring within the Roman Empire all slaves should be set free, uh, that, would have, that would have created chaos and poverty and anarchy in a sense like in our world when you imagine like a, when the Teamsters, when the truckers all go on strike and, and nothing's moving in our economy, or if the railroad goes on strike and nothing's moving in our economy, how it affects everybody in a detrimental way, that would be true of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. If all of a sudden there aren't slaves, the whole economy comes crashing down. Not that that's the worst thing in the world, but it really detracts from why the church is the church, and that's to preach a gospel. So that's the first part of the difference. The second part is this, though. In the Greco-Roman world, there was slavery every bit as atrocious as in, in early America. Don't, don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself that everybody who was in a slave was happy to be a slave. There were slaves who were abused and beaten, and it was unconscionable. It was wrong. It was horrendous. That happened too. That happened too. It wasn't that dissimilar, but it wasn't exactly the same either. So those are our first two parameters. The third parameter is this. In a very real sense, the Bible regards everyone to be a slave. Every person in this room is a slave. Bob Dylan, the theologian, got it right when he was a theologian. You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you have got to serve somebody. You are somebody's slave. You are either, the Bible teaches, you are either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God, a slave to Christ, a slave to righteousness, a slave to your brother, because we're to serve one another, which is the idea of slavery to one another. But you are somebody's slave. Now, here's where I just discovered what John MacArthur... I realized this morning, I'm like, you know, John MacArthur wrote a book on slavery. It wasn't a bestseller. Not a shock, because nobody likes to read that they're a slave. Uh, and I, I meant to look up when he wrote it. It was some time ago. But I found a promo when I, when I first wanted to see what he said. A promo for the book. Again, it's a little over the top. But it also is very thought-provoking. It's just over a minute long. So here's what John MacArthur says about the word that is used here about a slave. Exploring the New Testament, I uncovered a distortion of truth when it came to the word doulos. Doulos means slave. When I began to unfold the 150 times that word is used, I realized that my understanding of the New Testament had exploded in a whole new way. The book Slave is about the hidden word that unlocks the believer's identity. Virtually all English translations ignore the fact that doulos only means slave and translated servant. There had been a conspiracy to cover up a truth that is so essential to the New Testament that without it, we misunderstand our relationship to Jesus Christ. 
servant does a job. A slave is owned. When you understand the concept of the Christian as a slave, then you understand what it means to be bought out of the slave market of sin. As believers, we are slaves who become friends, friends who become sons, sons who become joint heirs. Just changes everything that I perceive about the Christian life. Jesus is Lord, and I am his slave. I think the most effective point he makes in that is a, a servant serves, like he's doing something, but a slave is owned. And you can see how uh, the stakes are raised from you are required to do something to your identity is you are owned by someone else. So I've got a trivia question for you. Trivia challenge, just think about it in your own mind. My question is this, when Christ Jesus came to earth, was he a slave? Just think about that. When Christ Jesus came to earth, does the Bible teach or suggest or say that he was a slave? Uh, and I'm thinking primarily the New Testament at this point, because you're not going to find doulos in the Old Testament, that's Hebrew, so in the New Testament. <clears throat> I, uh, I kind of wrestled through this question this week, and I thought I was going to wind up with one answer, and then I wound up with a second answer. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. So there's two relevant passages that you could turn to to answer the question, when Christ Jesus came to earth, was he a slave? The first passage is in Matthew 20. You don't have to turn there, but you can jot it down just to make sure that I'm reading it right. It reads like this. But Jesus called them to him, his disciples... And he said, you know that the rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says in respect to himself, I came to serve. That's the verb form of doulos. But it, it's what he's doing. He served. You could at least say he served as a slave. But was he a slave? There's a little... I'm still making... As I'm wrestling through this, I'm still making a distinction between serving as a slave and actually being a slave. Was Christ a slave? And out of the hundred, if, if I didn't check MacArthur that there's 150 uses, I'll assume he's roughly right. If there's 150 uses, there's only one text in all, the, in all of the Bible that you could point to and say, because of that text, Christ was a slave. You might be familiar with it. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. I do have these verses on the screen. They read like this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, that is, he was uh, totally God, 
He was totally God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, retained. Uh, He didn't say, look, I'm God. I don't want to be made flesh. I don't want to become a man. I don't want to become the Savior. He didn't say, no, that's part of a divine redemptive plan between Father, Son, and Spirit, where though He was totally God, He became man, emptying Himself by taking the form of, of a slave. It's the same word, doulos. He was the embodiment of a slave. He was totally God, and then he became totally man. Totally, not just a man, totally a slave. Being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, that is actually not the same word as these two forms. It's unfortunate that it's translated the same way, so I put it in a different color. So being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was not a slave of the Jews. He was not a slave of the Gentiles. He was not a slave of his disciples. He was a slave of his fathers. He came to do his father's will. He humbled himself as a slave to do his father's will and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross, as a criminal. Because he's a slave. So I think the answer to the question is, yes, Christ was a slave according to that text. And, and if we were to always translate the word slave, you can see how off-putting it would be in our English translations, because we don't like the word. Uh, to say that he took the form of a slave is, just sounds a lot rougher and more demeaning than he took the form of a servant. Let's go back. Parameter number four, these commands to servants and masters remain relevant in the 21st century. They remain relevant in the 21st century and to you right now, though in some sense you're not a slave like in the Greco-Roman sense, but you will encounter people and situations and circumstances where you get treated as a slave, maybe it's by a supervisor or a boss or whatever the case may be, and you have the freedom to leave. Because you're not a slave like in their sense. Nobody can make you keep that job. But it may be such a job or desirable enough. You want to keep that job, but you're being treated miserably. Under those circumstances, Paul's got a, a lot of really good advice as to what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Even in our culture, where we don't have that same kind of slavery that Paul is writing about in the Greco-Roman world. So let's look at it. Servants are given one command in these verses. One command. That one command is the word obey. It's the exact same word that was used of children. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your master. And that word, uh, or that command, obey, is then colored by everything else Paul says in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. He adds a lot of color. What does that obedience look like? He colors it. Well, you obey with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling before your earthly master. Uh, In Colossians, he says, because Colossians is parallel to Ephesians, in Colossians, it's obey fearing God. So if I put that together, the fear and trembling before an earthly master is really because I am fearing God. And God has called me to obey. 
I do not take that fear and trembling as uh, a trembling, fearing for your own life and safety. I just don't take it that way. I think there's a, ra- a semantic range of meaning for the word fear. I think here it means soberly, respectfully. This is a serious situation. Don't treat it with kid gloves. Like you got to, I mean, for guys it would be, you got to man up. Bite the bullet. You've got to sacrifice your pride. You've got to humble yourself. Take this responsibility seriously with fear and trembling. God has called you to this. It's the, that word fear is the exact same word that is used back in chapter 5 and verse uh, 33, where in the instructions to wives and husbands it sums up, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she fears her husband. Now, my Bible says respects, but it's the same word, fears. In that case, I don't know that anybody argues uh, that wives should be trembling in fear before their husbands, but it means it's a serious relationship, and you should respect and honor him as, as, the, leader of your, as the leader of your home. And then his responsibility is to love you as Christ loved the church. And both responsibilities are impossible apart from the grace of God. But I take that as a very, to be serious-minded about what you are charged with as a servant or as a slave. He says, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Everybody here knows what it's like. To behave one way because somebody's watching and behave another way because you don't think anybody's watching. We all know that, right? Whether you're a child, whether you're in an employment situation, whether you're in the neighborhood. I mean, you just, we behave different ways depending on who we think is watching us. And what Paul is saying to these slaves, to these servants, don't just behave a certain way. When you're, when you're being watched and you know you're being watched, I want you to commit to this thing whether you think anybody's watching you or not because that's what Christ has called you to do. Another part of the color is doing the will of God from the soul. The English Standard Version has the word heart, which was used here. It's not the same word. It's the word soul. So here, it's, uh, I think it has to do with the idea of a right attitude. Because you can do something with the wrong attitude. He wants you to do the will of God with the right attitude. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. That last part of the coloring what it means to obey, that requires faith. The Christ knows and he will reward you when you do what he's asked you to do in difficult circumstances. That requires faith. Because when I want a reward, I want a reward like kind of immediately. I want somebody to recognize what I've done and I want it to pay off quickly. But that's not the way Christ works. He may reward you quickly, but as often as not, it's a long game. But he will reward the kind of service that you render that he has called you to, whether it's a wife or as a husband or as a child or as a parent, as an employee or as a slave. Why are slaves to obey? Why are slaves to obey? Here's where I want you to think back as to why children were to obey. 
Because the same word was used of children. Children, obey your parents. Do you remember what he said? The first reason, this is right. It's the way God did it by design. Before sin ever entered the world, in Genesis chapter 3 is when sin entered. Before that, when God created man and woman, and they are to propagate and fill the earth with the Lord's glory, children were to obey their parents. And they would have, because they wouldn't have had a sin nature. That's part of creative design. Paul doesn't appeal to a creative design as to why slaves should obey. He doesn't say, slaves obey, this is right, God has ordained it. It's the world in which they lived, because now it's after sin. So the reason why slaves are to obey in this context has everything to do with Christ. As you would Christ, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God, as to the Lord, He will receive back from the Lord. Why are slaves to obey? Because Christ was a slave before you were. And He was obedient to His Father, even to death on a cross. And as his disciples, as his sons and daughters, were to be his slaves and follow him into obedience as to him. He's asked us to do it. Not because it's part of the creative order, but because he has asked us to do it. <clears throat> if slaves are so commanded, how much more should Christians be model employees? If Paul can call slaves to this type of behavior... How much ought we to probably up our game a little bit in how we conduct ourselves in our own spheres of responsibility with whatever employer we may have? And if you say, they don't deserve my respect, they don't deserve the right attitude, they don't deserve that I give 100%, that's kind of, that, that really is off the table. Because we're ultimately, at the end of the day, Christians aren't serving whoever's signing your paycheck. Christians are serving Christ. That's the reason. Now let's move on to masters. <clears throat> masters are given one command. Slaves are told to obey. Masters are given one charge. That one charge is do the same. Do the same. Which is a little unclear. What exactly are we talking about? Do the same. Well, if I, if I fill in what slaves were told, I think when he says do the same, he's saying in this structure in what I've, what I've laid out as to what this relationship ought to look like, where everything's being motivated by what Christ uh, has called us to, knowing that Christ is Lord, knowing that Christ rewards, knowing that we're held accountable by Christ, then a master is to conduct themselves with that in the back of his mind the whole way, all along the way as well. If I look to Colossians, which is a very shortened version of these household codes, Colossians puts it this way. Masters, treat your bondservants, slaves, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Do the same thing. Just like slaves are to conduct themselves with a, a certain amount of sobriety and seriousness and earnestness to please Christ as Lord, masters are to do the same thing. And as masters are committed to the same thing, they're to treat their servants justly and fairly. Two conclusions. Number one, recognize slaves have a right to just and fair treatment is what Paul is suggesting. If I put 
the two texts together. Number two, shockingly, masters owe something to their slaves. This is countercultural when Paul wrote it. Nobody else in Greco-Rome was saying that masters owe their slaves something like justness and fairness. Paul was. What Christianity is teaching back then is countercultural. It's revolutionary. And it's the gospel that was teaching it. <coughs> All right, here's some implications. There's one big implication, and then out of the big implication, I've got these four uh, ramifications or secondary implications. The one big implication that, like, I'm not, I've decided I'm not ashamed about what the Bible teaches about slavery. Uh, We like to think we are ends to ourselves. We're Americans, we're free, we're independent, we are self-determining, you can be anything you want to be. Not under God's heaven, you can't. You will be held accountable by that God, and you are somebody's slave. And if you don't think you're a slave, that tells me how enslaved, in fact, you actually are. I want to be enslaved to the one who made me, not the one who would damn me in hell with himself. So here's the big implication. Don't miss or underestimate how remarkable it is that Paul writes a letter to be circulated among the churches where slaves are addressed directly. He doesn't write to the Ephesians and tells the Ephesians, now you masters, I want you to let your slaves know this is what I told them. He's writing to the church with the expectation slaves are sitting right where you're sitting. Right alongside the masters. They're hearing what everybody's hearing. That is countercultural. Slaves are in the assembly. They are equal members of the local church. They have the same opportunities to minister and to serve as their free counterparts. That is unheard of in most of world history. And Christianity taught those slaves, you deserve respect, you deserve fair treatment. That's an amazing thing. So here's four, four takeaways from that. Number one, this unprecedented new construct will necessarily undermine and transform the accepted norm of slavery. The way that Christianity undermines, pulls the rug out from slavery, is not from, from uh, trying to impose slavery in a political sense, a power and a sphere of authority they don't have but by telling slaves within the church and among Christians, they are equals to you, they're your brothers and your sisters, and you treat them right because you'll be held accountable by God. And it's hard to treat a slave as an equal in the church and then treat them as less than that outside of the church. That's number one. Number two, similar, within this context, or within the context of the gospel, slavery was bound to collapse from within. And in fact, that's what we found in, in Western world. That's what we found in European history. That it was not exclusively, but really primarily Christians that drove the abolition of slavery. It was primarily Christians that drove it out. This isn't right. And that's to, that's to Christianity's credit, because that's the, the change the gospel makes. Number three, as Christians have the opportunity, they ought to be the ones leading societal change. And I'm not talking the church here, I'm talking individual Christians. 
So if I'm a Christian, and let's say I'm in politics, I'm a Christian in politics, I've been saved by the grace of God, that ought to make a difference in how I, uh, in what legislation I support and suggest. And I have no business as a Christian saying, well, I personally would never do that, but I wouldn't want to impose my values on anybody else. If I'm a Christian, it affects the way I vote, it affects the way I think, it affects the way I treat people. I don't care what the rest of society is doing. Christians should be Christians in wherever they're at. And the way we treat one another as Christians gathered together is the way we treat other people when we're separated. The last point, the church fails miserably when it has had the opportunity to affect change by confronting wrong inside the fellowship and instead turns a blind eye. This is where it gets dicey, and this is where the church uh, has not always looked very good. So if I take it back to American slavery, and the church entertained... I know what Paul wrote to the Ephesians about how slaves should be treated. I know Paul expected slaves to be equals within the assembly as they gathered together. But oftentimes in American history, white owners didn't treat their slaves like that and they went to church on Sunday. And during the industrial age, there were children and workers that were mistreated as well. And the church didn't, didn't call people within the church accountable for that, and they ought to have. It should have never had to have been uh, so, something that... Uh, Within, outside the church, part of the movement to, to eliminate slavery in our country, you know what? That should have been driven by the church. Because the church should have back in that day said, you know, we can't control what's happening in the culture and in the world. But in our church, in those that preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and equality in Christ, it doesn't happen here. And if you're a white owner and you think you can treat or that blacks have to meet in their own little congregation because they're not allowed here, that's wrong and it should have been dealt with. And it wasn't, and that's to our shame. I'm not responsible for that. Uh, I'm not trying to apologize for a past generation. I'm just reflecting back and knowing what happened, it shouldn't have happened. The church should have manned up and called sin, sin. But the church oftentimes doesn't do that. A lot of times the church doesn't man up and call sin, sin. And partly they don't do that because they know somebody has a lot of power. Or they give a lot of money. Or what would it do to the church? We want to keep the group together. You know what? This is Christ's church. It's not my church. And it's not your church. And if we are going to live the gospel, and it means the church splits, so be it. If Christ wants us together, he'll keep us together. I would rather do it God's way, and we lose a lot. The building, can't do the building project, can't fund this, can't fund that. I would rather do it Christ's way and lose everything else than to make compromises to keep it all together. What are your comments and questions? And what permeates the Bible is we're all slaves. We are all slaves all the time to somebody. But in our, we are so immersed in Western culture, we just don't like to think of ourselves that way. But it's true. It's, it's still true. 
Uh, Craig. Yes, yeah. In Christ, it bridges, it bridges all the barriers, all the things that would divide us, it's, it's brought together in Christ. You know, it's very interesting, too, as I was trying to research, you know, this teaching, uh, the concept of bondservant is extremely scarce in the Bible. You, and it's so interesting that the ESV chooses to, to so often use the word bondservant because it is so much more palatable. It is that is a hard concept to find in the Bible. Uh, it's kind of a, there's no word for it. There's kind of a situation described a little bit in, I think, Leviticus, and that's about it. Uh, there were a variety of ways that somebody became a slave. Uh, you could, to pay off a debt, you could make yourself a slave. Uh, you could... Uh, willingly choose to be a slave because the situation was so desirable. You, oftentimes, a lot of slaves were made slaves because they were conquered people. I mean, that's, that's a big reason why people were slaves. You know, the Philistines are fighting the Israelites. And, and David says, or I don't know, maybe it was the Israelites said, like, if we conquer you, you'll be our slaves. And if you conquer us, we'll be your slaves. That's the way the world worked. Conquering people made the conquered people their slaves. You're right, in Israel, uh, God gave very explicit instructions among Israelites that slavery was very much contained. And you couldn't treat your brother in, in a very offensive way. You had to treat him with, a, with respect and honor because he's an Israelite and you were all slaves in Egypt one day. Just like we were, you know what, we were all slaves too. We're still slaves. It's just who slave are you. Anybody else? Uh, Carrie, Rod, Rick, and then we better go downstairs and eat burnt potatoes. <laughs> well, a, a big difference between, I mean, there's some similarity between slaves and children. There's less similarity between slaves and wives. Wives aren't told to obey, they're told to submit to put themselves under as an equal, because they are full equal. But uh, children are ch told to obey, slaves are told to obey. But then both children, parents, slaves, masters are all told, you'll all be held accountable by God one day. And Christ rewards in accordance to what he's, his supervising the whole situation. Uh, but yeah, your question, we could go a long way on that. So, Rod? Yeah, Elizabeth Elliot had one of the most amazing insights, probably the best one I've ever heard on, on slavery and servanthood. She's like, you know, we, as long as I'm picking my spot to serve, that's not really showing whether I have a servant's heart. It's when somebody treats you as a servant. They treat you as a slave. You know, that, that is so offensive, right? Like, if I choose my spot, like, I'm going to, boy, I'm such a servant. I'm such a slave. Like, I, what I did was so self-sacrificing. But if I'm choosing to do it, dude, I can be puffed up with my own pride. But when somebody treats me like, oh, you know, you should, you know, do this. Like, who do you think you are telling me what to do? Like, you can't treat, I'm a slave. I mean, it's, you're right. Uh, 
as long as we're still in control, we, we really haven't fully grasped what it means to be a slave. We really haven't fully grasped. Rick, and then we've got to close. Yeah, that was a problem. <laughs> Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. God, our Father, I thank you for uh, your clear and plain instruction, even when it goes against the grain, goes against uh, our culture, goes against the, our, my own prideful will. <laughs>